Well, good morning. We're continuing in Ruth, and uh, when I read through this passage early this week, I was reminded of what some of you might have heard about. It's called the 3 a.m. test. Some of you might know what the 3 a.m. test is. Various organizations and nonprofits and companies, when they talk about their vision or their values or their mission, will talk about how they want their leaders to be able to pass the 3 a.m. test. I want all of our elders to be able to pass the 3 a.m. test. And what that is is simply this. If I were to break into one of our elders' homes, this is hypothetical, I assure you. But if I were to break in one of our elders' homes and wake one of them up at 3 in the morning and say to them, name the seven core values of Christ Church, they should know them so well. They should be so deeply embedded in their hearts and minds that they can immediately list them off for me, even in their groggy state at 3 in the morning. The 3 a.m. test is sort of a teaching tool that people use to help determine how well a given organization knows what its values are, knows what its mission is. Ruth chapter 3 gives us a different kind of 3 a.m. test. This is really the highlight and the apex of the story of Ruth. The tension is highest in this story. Boaz, who we met last week, has a stranger wake him up from the dead of sleep in the middle of the night and put forward to him really a life-changing proposal, a life-changing proposition. And the reason the tension is so high in Ruth isn't just because of what's happening in this story, but it's because of Ruth's place in the larger context of the Bible. So much depends on how Boaz is going to respond to Ruth in these verses. So much depends on how he answers her request to him in the middle of the night. Now, we know how it ends if we know the Bible, but the stakes in this moment are high. The question really is, is the line of David going to move forward? Who is going to rescue Israel from the dark days of the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes? That's where Ruth takes place. And more importantly, the future birth of David's greater son, Jesus himself, depends on how Boaz responds to Ruth here as well, because Jesus is a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. This is a story about Ruth taking a massive, a massive risk of faith and about Boaz becoming her protector and redeemer. In so many ways, this is a great love story that really encapsulates for us the entire message of the gospel. And it encapsulates the entire message of Advent. So that's what I want to look at with you together this morning. If you haven't been with us the prior few weeks, then you have the unfortunate situation of showing up in the middle of the story. It's sort of like, you know, starting to watch Star Wars uh, in the middle of The Empire Strikes Back. Like right before, spoiler alert, it's 40 years old, spoiler alert though, right before Darth Vader tells Luke, hey Luke, I'm your father. It's like you started right there. You're not going to know what's happened and you're not going to know where the story's going. So let me just really quickly summarize for you what's going on in Ruth. So there's this woman, Naomi. Her and her husband, whose name was Elimelech, were Hebrews. They were people of Israel. But they left Israel because there was a famine. They went to the land of Moab, and they lived there for at least 10 years. They took their two sons with them. Their two sons married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But Elimelech died, and his two sons died, and these women were left destitute and alone. 
Naomi, when we open Ruth, is in a bad spot. She's bitter towards God. She doesn't know what her life has become, and she decides that her only option is to go back home to the town of Bethlehem in Israel. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, commits. She pledges herself to Naomi. She says, I'm going to go with you, Naomi, no matter what. So Naomi and Ruth make their way back from Moab to Bethlehem. These women are destitute. They have no course for a life for themselves because all the men in their life are gone. And so Ruth, at the beginning of chapter 2, says, I've got to find food to put on the table for us. And she decides to go out. She goes out into um, a field that just so happens to be owned by this man, Boaz. Boaz is the closest relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. Boaz happens to meet Ruth out in the field, and he's very kind to her. He shows her grace. He provides her with food to eat throughout the whole harvest time, and Ruth is cared for, and Naomi is cared for, at least in the short term. But the long-term problem is still in effect for Ruth. And that problem is, how is Ruth going to provide for herself? How is Ruth going to meet her needs in the long run? Because for a foreign Moabite woman living in the middle of Israel, thousands of years ago, without a husband, without a man to take care of her, she is in deep trouble. And so that's where we pick up here in Ruth chapter 3. And in this chapter, we see Naomi moving from bitterness towards God to faith in God. We see Naomi moving from indifference towards Ruth to love for Ruth. And we see an an idea blossom in Naomi's mind, which starts chapter 3 off. And the consequences of Naomi's idea play out through this chapter. So let's break this story down into two parts for you. Here's your outline. Very simply, first, the plan. Second, the the protector. The plan and the protector. So first, let's look at the plan. Look with me in the scripture. Verse 1, Naomi knows that for Ruth to have rest, which she talks about there in verse 1, she knows that for life to go well for Ruth, Ruth is going to need to get married. She's going to need to get married. Now, that's not intended to be sexist. Let's not read our 21st century categories onto this ancient text. It was just the way of the ancient world. Foreign widows with no husbands to care for them, were completely at the mercy of others. They were in a really troublesome spot. And so a few months have passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and Naomi lays out this idea in the early verses here of chapter 3 to her mother-in-law, or to her daughter-in-law. And it's likely that as soon as Naomi had heard that Ruth found her way to Boaz's field, this idea sprouted in her mind. And now Naomi sees the chance to put it into action. So what's her idea? Well, look with me in the story. Look at what she tells Ruth. She knows that Boaz is going to be sleeping on the threshing floor, which is this little room out in the field. It's the end of harvest season, and Boaz and his workers are going to celebrate the end of the season and the the harvest that they've brought in. Plus, they're going to sleep next to the harvest to protect it from marauders and from raiders to make sure their investment isn't stolen. And so knowing where Boaz is going to be, Naomi says to Ruth, verse 3, wash up, take a bath, and put on some perfume, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, find out where he lies down, then go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what to do next. So go for it. What in the world is going on here? 
What is Naomi asking of Ruth? Um, This could be interpreted PG-13. R. This could be interpreted in a a PG-13 way. Naomi's instructions to Ruth here, uh, they're ambiguous. Part of their ambiguity is because this happened 4,000 years ago, and the cultural norms of that world are very different from our cultural norms, but the actual language is also somewhat ambiguous. You could interpret, you could interpret Naomi's instructions as her telling Ruth to go and seduce Boaz when he's had a few drinks and he's tired. That's not the best interpretation, though. Um, It's not the best interpretation. It's not the best way to read the story for a couple of reasons. For one, if you notice there in verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth to wear a cloak. You might have just passed over that, but that word cloak is like a winter jacket. We're talking full garb. It's not lingerie, people. Um, She's not exactly encouraging Naomi only to get dressed up to the nines so that Boaz will be attracted to her. And then nothing Naomi says requires uh, a sexual interpretation. But the most important reason why we shouldn't see Naomi telling Ruth to go seduce Boaz is because for Naomi to say that to Ruth would go against everything we've learned about Ruth and everything we've learned about Boaz in this story so far. It would violate the entire arc of their characters. Ruth has shown herself to be faithful and wise and true. Boaz, in chapter 2, when he was introduced to us, was described as a worthy man, and he proved it last week in his treatment of Ruth and Naomi. So the nail in the coffin to thinking about this in some sort of sexually illicit way is how Boaz responds in verse 10. He says, blessed are you, Ruth. I'm going to take care of you. We'll get to that more in a minute. But if Ruth is sequestering him on the threshing floor to take advantage of him, it's unlikely that a worthy man like Boaz is going to respond that way. So we shouldn't read any sort of sexual illicit uh, action on Naomi's part or on Ruth's part in this interpretation. So what is Naomi doing? What is she asking of Ruth? Listen, here's what she's saying. She's saying, Ruth, your only chance is to place yourself at the mercy of this man. Your only shot, your only shot is to place yourself at the mercy of Boaz. She's saying Boaz is your best chance at a future. So see what he will do for you. And so Ruth does it. We read verse 6, 7, and 8. She does everything Naomi told her. She goes out into the night to the threshing floor. She finds Boaz sleeping. She uncovers his foot, probably because it will make him cold, and he'll wake up. And then... When Boaz wakes up and says, who are you? Ruth diverts from the script. This is the first time that Ruth does something that Naomi didn't tell her to do. Look at what Ruth says to Boaz. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now listen, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Now Naomi didn't tell Ruth to say that. What Ruth is doing here is taking um, what can only be interpreted as stunning initiative. It's a stunning initiative. Basically, she's saying, Boaz, I need you to marry me. (laughs) This is a proposal. Remember what Boaz had said to Ruth in the prior chapter, verse 12 of chapter 2. He said, 
the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth is saying, hey, Boaz, remember when you gave me that blessing? And when you said, I've come here so that God will take, ref- so that God will take care of me? Well, I'm going to need you to be the one that fulfills that promise for me. This is a marriage proposal. Ruth's saying, I want you to care for me. I want you, Boaz, to assume responsibility for my security. I want you to marry me. Think about that. In the 21st century, for a woman to do something like that is somewhat of a risk. In 5th century BC, whenever this was, before that actually, 4,000 years ago, this was a massive, massive gamble on Ruth's part and on Naomi's part. I mean, think with me. Imagine all the ways this could have gone wrong. (laughs) I mean, for one, Ruth is going to the threshing floor with a lot of men who have been drinking at night. And she's a foreigner. In fact, she's a Moabite. And Moabites are known for being sexually immoral. And this is the period of the judges when sexual assault was sadly the norm in a place like Israel. Ruth is putting her own safety at significant risk just by going onto the threshing floor, period. Furthermore, Boaz could have easily interpreted what Ruth did to him wrongly. I mean, think about it. Boaz has all the power in this relationship. He could easily, easily have taken advantage of Ruth and then covered it up so that no one would ever have known what had happened. Or Boaz could have been highly offended at what he thought Ruth was asking him. He could have interpreted her actions as soliciting for something, just like we just talked about. And being a good man, Boaz could have said, no, and then immediately stopped his generosity to Ruth and to Naomi. Or Boaz could have just been taken aback at how highly irregular this is. I mean, think about this. This is a, a woman proposing to a man. But it's not just that. It's a a younger person proposing to an older person. It's a foreigner proposing to a native. It's a field worker proposing to the field owner. Honestly, honestly, it's impossible. It's impossible that this was going to work for Ruth. The Evans family has been watching Mission Impossible lately, the movies. I have an irrational love for those movies. Uh, especially Ghost Protocol. That's, that's my favorite one. And uh, one of the things I love about the Mission Impossible movies is it's just how absurd the entire plot lines are. Uh, I mean, isn't that why action movies are so fun? I mean, one of multiple reasons. I mean, when they do things that are just completely unrealistic and insane, like climbing up a building in a dust storm to retrieve computer data. It's an awesome scene, by the way. Uh, in Ghost Protocol, or or jumping off of a helicopter on the top of a mountain as the helicopter's crashing. Plus, it's Tom Cruise doing all this, who's like 75 years old by now, it seems like. He's got to be drawing on Social Security. So it's insane. I mean, it's called Mission Impossible for a reason. What we see is it's impossible. This is Mission Impossible for Ruth. It really is. It's Mission Impossible for Naomi, but it works. It works. And the reason it works is because the hidden hand of God, the hidden hand of God is at work in an astounding way in this story. The hidden hand of God is at work in an astounding way in this story. So think with me, what does this story teach you? What does this story mean for your life now? What does this story mean for my life? 
Well, there's many things, but I was struck this week by how this story communicates to us the bold nature of faith. It communicates the boldness of faith. It talks to us about about the risks that people can take when they trust God. Naomi and, and Ruth, by this point, they've seen enough of God's love for them. They've seen enough of God's faithfulness to them that they can move out and do something like this. It's, it's sort of beautifully reckless. It's a beautifully reckless faith that they're displaying here. Ruth is, she's willing to place her entire life on the line. She's willing to lay her whole future in God's hands and trust that he is going to take care of her. Are you willing to do that? Have you ever had an experience of faith where you've had to lay yourself into God's hands completely? There's a song we sing here sometimes at Christ Church called Come Ye Sinners. The original hymn has a line in which the hymn writer says, Venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. Venture on him, venture wholly, let no other trust intrude. That's a great, beautiful, poetic description of what faith is. And that's exactly what Ruth and Naomi are doing. They are, they're venturing entirely, wholly on God here. That's part of what this story teaches us. Will you do this for me? Will you do this with me? Let the Holy Spirit, who's real and alive and active and present right here, right now, let him speak to you through this story. Let him ask you this. Where in your life are you being asked to take a risk of faith? Where in your life are you being asked to venture wholly on God? Where? Where are you being asked to move out into the future of your life, boldly believing that God is going to provide, that God is going to answer? You know, this world that we're living in, 21st century America, the farther it moves from the way of Jesus, the more it needs to see the people of Jesus believing the impossible Believing the impossible because they love Jesus. Ruth teaches us what Jesus says elsewhere. Nothing is impossible with God. So can I challenge you in this way? Can you let the Holy Spirit through this message challenge you in this way? What prayer can you pray? What prayer can you pray in the year 2020 that you right now, if you're being completely honest, believe is an impossible prayer? What prayer can you pray that for God to answer would require you to venture wholly on him that you think would be completely absurd if it were to happen in your life. Here's what I want you to do. I want you right now or when you get home today to take out a notebook or make a note on your phone or do whatever it is you do. Think about that and I want you to write that prayer down. Write down an impossible prayer request. And then put it somewhere that you can regularly see it. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it in your car, unless it's on your phone. Don't look at it in your car if it's on your phone, please. (laughs) Um, Put it somewhere where you can regularly see it. And just pray it regularly this year. Maybe add it to a book you use if you use that for your devotions. Put it in the front cover of your Bible. What would yours be? What is your impossible prayer? What would force you to venture wholly on God? That's what this story is asking of you. 
This story isn't just an old story for you to hear something interesting about and then go home. This story is a challenge. It's a summons from God to trust him wholly. Maybe it's that God will get you out of debt, which you don't think is possible this year. Maybe your impossible prayer is, I want to have my sickness removed. I want to have my disease healed. Maybe your prayer is, I want my spouse to believe in Jesus. Or I want my marriage to get better. Maybe it's, I want to overcome an addiction that haunts me and overwhelms me. Whatever it is, write it down. And pray those seemingly impossible prayers this year and see what God does. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. That's one of the things that Ruth teaches us and that the Spirit perhaps is urging you towards. So we see the plan. We see Ruth initiate it and follow through with it. And we see her make this impossible request of Boaz. Boaz, hey, nice to meet you. I know it's only been a few months. I know you're tired. This isn't the most romantic place, but can we get married? Like pronto, because I'm going to starve otherwise. Let's see what happens next. Naomi and Ruth, they, they venture out in faith. They trust that Boaz is going to interpret their actions in the best possible light. And honestly, this is mission impossible. This is incredibly unlikely, but it's their only hope. They believe God has brought them this far and he's not going to abandon them now. So how does Boaz respond? He gets woken up, verse 9, by this strange woman in the middle of the night. He says, who are you? who are you? And she says, hey, it's me, Ruth. Um, I'm your servant. Please marry me. Tension, high point of the whole book right here. This is the high tension moment in the whole story. Look at what Boaz says, verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen, know that you're a worthy woman. So Boaz responds incredibly, amazingly, by promising to protect her. Boaz promises to care for Ruth. Boaz promises to redeem her. We'll talk more about that next week. It would not be a stretch to say that Boaz saves Ruth. Boaz saves Ruth. He redeems and rescues her. He provides for and protects her. And here's the deal. In Boaz's actions here, we see the real meaning of this story. We see the real meaning of the Advent season. We see the real meaning of the Bible. Here's what I don't want to do at this point. I don't want to have you husbands stand up and say, Hey, husbands, you need to love your wife the way Boaz loved his. Should you do that? Yes. Yes, you should do that. You should protect your wife and provide for your wife and care for your wife. But that's not the point of this story. It's just not. The point of the story is not to give us good moral lessons that we can take home and implement. Seven steps. No, 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 no. That's a nice side benefit. But the point of this text is to show you the greater story of the Bible. The point of this text is to show you that Boaz's love for Ruth is a picture Boaz's love for Ruth is a picture of God in Christ's greater love for us. Boaz's faithful protection for Ruth puts on display Jesus's faithful protection for us. 
the protection and the provision that Boaz gives to Ruth teach us about the perfection and the provision that Jesus gives for us. Boaz, is he's fleshing out what a Redeemer does. He's telling us what saviors come for, what Jesus does for us. So I want to close by just giving you a couple of ways. A couple of ways in which we can see in this story how Boaz cares for Ruth and therefore how Jesus cares for us. Because that's the real point of the text. Let me show you three and then we'll finish. Okay, so first, look, Boaz cares for and protects Ruth, but he doesn't need her. He cares for and protects Ruth, but he doesn't need her. Let me, let me try to explain that. Boaz's care, his love for her, his protection for her does not arise out of this sort of neediness. Maybe I can say it this way. This is not a Hallmark, Hallmark movie. It's not. It's not a Christmas Hallmark movie. It's not Jerry Maguire, you complete me. It's just not. At verse 13, he's really clear with Ruth. He basically says, hey, it's true. I'm a redeemer. There is another guy who's a closer redeemer. That basically means there's someone else who's a closer relative to you than me. There's a closer relative to Elimelech than I am. And if he'll do it, he needs to do it. But if he won't do it, then I'll do it. Basically, I want to make sure that you're going to be taken care of, Ruth. That's Boaz's main concern. I want to make sure you're going to be taken care of. He doesn't talk here like a person who just desperately needs Ruth. He loves Ruth. He cares for Ruth. He provides for Ruth. He's willing and even glad to do these things, but he's not somehow lost without Ruth. And he's not desperately needing Ruth in his life in some sort of (laughs) weird codependent way. Now, why mention that? Simply to say this, God does not send Jesus to redeem us because God needs us. He doesn't send Jesus to redeem us because um, he's just unbearably lonely without us in his life. God, uh, God did not and does not need us. Uh, I have a friend who was telling me a few weeks ago, a friend I've known since college, he went to visit these underground caverns. It's not Carlsbad caverns. I think they're somewhere like in the south, in Kentucky maybe. He went with his family to visit these underground caverns and uh, they go into this display room where there's this glass wall and they turn the lights on and you can see these caverns and like how deep they go. It's apparently this like stunning visual moment. And so they shuffle all the people into this room and they turn the lights on and they close the door and these cabins appear. And then this voice, sounded like Charlton Heston, I imagine, shows up over the speaker that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God made people because he was lonely. Statement one, true. Statement two, false. God is not someone who has need. Because to have a need implies that you have a lack or a deficiency. And God has no lack. God has no deficiency. God was not lonely before this world was made. When there was nothing but God, he had perfect community. He had perfect joy and happiness without us in his own Trinitarian being. So what that means is that even our creation, even the fact that we are breathing right now is by grace. The fact that we and anything other than God exists is not because God needed us to exist. It's because God wants us to exist. 
God makes us and all things and God saves us and God loves us as the overflow of the love that wells up from within his own being. God saves us because he wants us. He doesn't save us because he needs us. That's one thing we can learn about the way God is and who Jesus is from this story. Secondly, secondly, think about this one with me. Boaz, he cares for Ruth and he protects Ruth in giving her this pledge. Did you notice that in the story? This pledge along with his promise. He says, verse 13, okay, one way or another, Ruth, you're going to be taken care of. But then as Ruth gets ready to leave and wait for Boaz to take care of uh, the redemption issue, we read verse 15, that he gives her six measures of barley for her to take home. How romantic. A hundred pounds of grain. Here you go, Ruth. That's a hundred pounds of grain, by the way, which Ruth Ruth would have to truck home on her back. So strong woman. And uh, he gives her a hundred pounds of grain and says, hey, I can't do it now, but here's, here's a pledge. We give engagement rings. Boaz gives barley. Here's some barley, Ruth. I love you. Talk to you tomorrow. Um, really romantic, I know. Remember, not Hallmark here. Uh, but what's happening? It, it's, it's as if Boaz is saying, this is a token. This is a token of my pledge to you. It's going to be okay, Ruth. I'm going to take care of you. And here's why I think that's important. What tokens of Jesus' pledge to us can you see in your life? What reminders does Jesus give you that he is going to take care of you, that he loves you, that he will protect you, that he will provide for you, that he has and will redeem you? Well, we see the Lord's Supper every week. That's one. That's what a sacrament is. It's a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. But I think it's also appropriate for us, especially during the Christmas season, to look at every good thing that we have in our life as a pledge of God's everlasting kindness to us. You should interpret all of your blessings as pledges of God's own faithfulness and provision for you. My kids, uh, they attend school here at Great Hearts, and Marianne teaches here. She was telling me this week that the headmaster here in the lower school had what I thought was a really cool idea. Um, They had a student assembly, and they gave every kid a notebook. And the goal is for every kid during this season to write in the notebook a thousand things that they're thankful for. A thousand things that they're thankful for. And if they get all 1,000 things written down and show that to the headmaster, I don't think they have to go to school the rest of the year. I think that's the prize. <laughs> no? Okay, Ainsley says no. That's probably not the prize, but there's probably some awesome prize at stake. I, I just thought that was such a great, a stupendous idea. What a great way to teach the practice of gratitude. I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that gratitude actually does make us happier when we practice it, when we engage in it. Is is there a better time of the year for us to be people who practice gratitude, to be people who can see all of the pledges of God's provision, all of the pledges of God's provision in each one of our lives, and as a result, ricochet those things up to him in thankfulness? Boaz cares for and protects Ruth, and he gives her a reminder, a sign, a pledge to show her that, just like God does for us. Last thing, Boaz cares for Ruth, and he protects Ruth, but it's costly. It's costly. We're going to see more about that next week, but it should go without saying that for Boaz to redeem Ruth is going to cost him financially. Uh, And 
much more than that. Uh, it turns out when you marry someone, it changes your life. Uh, for Boaz to marry Ruth, is, uh, it's going to change everything about Boaz's life. It, it changes Boaz's family tree. And Boaz gladly makes the sacrifice. He gladly pays the cost to redeem and care for and protect Ruth. But the point is, of course, our redemption, if we're followers of Jesus, is costly as well. Our redemption cost the life of Jesus. Our redemption cost blood. It's impossible without the shedding of blood to take away sin, says Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus' blood is the most precious substance in the universe. It's not gold. It's not some rare metal. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what, is what has been shed to bring us back into the family of God, to make us God's children, his beloved sons and daughters, to buy us out of bondage and slavery and death and darkness into the life and light of the gospel. And listen, God didn't need to do that. It didn't make God better off to ransom and redeem us, but he was delighted to do it. He was delighted to pay that cost, and Jesus was delighted to assume it in order to care for and protect us, in order to redeem us. God has paid an immeasurable cost to make us a part of his family, to change our family trees. And the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Ruth is that if you trust Jesus, you really are a part of the family of God because the price for your redemption has been paid in full. That's not just sentimental religious language that you're one of God's children. No, that is... That is fundamental to your new identity. You are a part of another family if you've connected to Jesus by faith. And it's a family with a perfect dad who has immeasurable resources and has pledged himself to take care of you all the time. And if you can get that woven into the spiritual fabric of your life, do you know what it does? It changes you. It changes you from a person of, of greed to a person of generosity. It changes you from a person of anger, pride, and anxiety over time to a person of graciousness and love and sacrifice. A friend of mine, another friend of mine uh, that I knew in seminary, has an older brother who's now a physician. He's an OBGYN. And uh, he, tell, he told me this story once about when he was a medical student on that track, um, one of his tasks in med school on the OBGYN track was to watch a live birth, to witness a live birth. And uh, at that point, he wasn't a dad yet, so this guy had never witnessed a live birth before. <clears throat> and so he watched the live birth with his class, and uh, after class, this is a true story, he went immediately from the hospital to the florist, and he bought a dozen red roses, and he took them to his mom's house. He had, a, he had a new category. He had a new category at that point for the sacrifice, for the cost that his mom had made for him. And uh, it's not like those flowers, you know, actually repaid mom so that mom said, we're even. <laughs> You're welcome. That's not what's going on there at all. And we all just intuitively know that. It was just a gesture that came out of the new category that he now had for how she had cared for him. The Bible says that if we abide in the word of God, if we abide in the truth that Jesus is our redeemer, that Jesus bought us and cares for us, 
it helps us see and appreciate his love in new ways, in fresh ways. And it helps us then, as a response to that, serve him and honor him and live for him. Not because he needs it, but because we're grateful. Just like the OBGYN's mom didn't need the flowers, but her son was learning what it cost for his life. And he was grateful. Ruth calls us to the same thing. It calls us to a spirit of gratitude because of the cost that has been paid to buy us back out of slavery and into freedom. Let's pray.